Alright, so I'm here driving along with some people from Occupy Detroit, and um, I wanted to introduce some of them to you guys. So, all you people out there, um, one of them you've actually heard from in a previous broadcast, and he happens to be sitting in the car with us right now, and since I like to maximize use of my time, I figured I'd have some intelligent conversation with you and all the listeners. So, that being said, first I'm going to have uh, the driver introduce herself. My name is Jessica Dahl. Hello, Jessica, and um, could you uh, let the listeners know, like, um, first of all, how long have you been with Occupy? Um, since before we were in the park, probably about two weeks before we were in the park. So that was uh, beginning of October. So the beginning of October, that was you know, like before you were even in the park, so that's kind of like before it even really started all the way, eh? Yes, I paid attention to the Wall Street movement first and was glued to my laptop screen and crossed my fingers for something in Detroit, and then, what do you know, it popped up. So, I joined. That's awesome. Now, is this your first time being an activist? It is not my first time being an activist, but it's my most heartfelt experience being an activist. What other kinds of activism were you involved in before Occupy Detroit? Animal rights, eco-rights, food system, um, politics, things like that. Awesome. Now, um... One of the uh, other questions that I tend to ask people because we're trying to break up the demographic that they're making us all, you know, supposedly belong to, but what was your economic situation like when you were growing up? Uh, I grew up in Detroit. Um, I grew up kind of in a low-income situation. I come from a working-class family um, from the automotive industry. Uh, So I always had... I never really wanted anything or needed anything, but... I definitely grew up in the lower totem of the economic situation. Now, I guess then that, of course, helps you really to understand, like, more uh, directly what the the situation is. I mean, because Detroit is kind of, you know, as uh, Michael Moore put it, the ground zero of the economic collapse. Um, So... Uh, I guess, like, when you're trying to talk to people about what it is that we're doing out here, do you ever have a difficulty maybe speaking to people that had it a little bit easier, that maybe don't understand why we're doing this? I find it, I don't find it so difficult. I just find it, sometimes it's a little frustrating. um, And I try to get people educated on exactly what's happening and where other people are coming from. I also try to put myself in their shoes because just because they didn't come from my situation doesn't mean that, you know, they're not able to understand. It just takes patience and time to help these people understand exactly what's happening, why we're doing what we're doing, and what it is that we're going for. Now, when you were when we were out at camp, you're kind of the point person for food, right? Yes. I guess uh, I was appointed camp mom. <laughs> so she was camp mom. And, uh, yes, she did, in fact, you know, uh, I was actually very impressed with the kind of food that we had at the camp. Um, Especially since I'm usually not a vegetarian kind of person at all, but you guys managed to make some stuff that I really enjoyed. Thank you. Uh, we we also tried to implement some meat. Uh, I don't personally like cooking it, but when it was provided for us, I made sure that people were happy and fed and able to continue, you know, the revolution, if you will, because... When people are hungry and tired and cold, they don't want to keep going. But if they're happy and fed and breaking bread with like-minded people, then they can keep moving towards the bigger goal. Now, let's kind of talk about that. What do you think the bigger goal is? Social and economic justice. I personally feel like 
from my own personal views, I would like to see there just be unity with your own neighbor first and then move forward until the whole country is on the steps of Washington, D.C. saying, nope, we're not going to do that because we don't believe you anymore. It's time to pay attention to what's really happening. Give us back our money and give us back our rights that you said that we had that we obviously do not have. Now, um, give me a moment, I would say, like, uh, you know, in time when you were out at, you know, the the camp, like a memorable moment from Occupy Detroit. A memorable moment. Many, many, many memorable moments, actually. Uh, I think one of my most memorable moments was when I was cooking breakfast, and I have grown up listening to uh, Martin Luther King's speeches and being being very interested in, in previous revolutions. And somebody started yelling my way, Reverend Jesse Jackson is here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I don't think so. And I peek behind the tarp tent, and there he stands in the center of Grand Circus Park with the Rainbow Coalition. And my heart completely stopped and opened up and gained such a larger scale of hope that we can keep doing this. If we're uniting with previous movements that have done such great success, I mean, why, why can't this work? You know, that's actually one of the things that I have to say was one of my most memorable moments was the fact that, you know, we are seeing more and more people from other, like, you know, previous movements who've shown up and kind of given us support, you know, so it definitely makes the Occupy movement really diverse because I've seen people of so many different ages, cultures, and creeds kind of unified under one banner, um, you know, and I think that's uh, probably one of the most powerful things about this movement in particular. Um, I remember speaking to and, you know, talking to a lot of different people who were part of the different 60s movements and the civil rights movements and things along that line that were there at the camp. Now, um, can you, uh, I mean, like you said, you had several. Do you have any more that you'd like to pointedly point out to the audience? Um, I really valued and appreciated when all of the UAW um, union workers came down, uh, union of auto workers came down and had a rally and, you know, kind of stood up for the fact that this is the city that was built on labor. Um, people used to come to Detroit for jobs from all over the world. And we're kind of, you know, we have no jobs here. People with college degrees are fighting over a job, flipping burgers for a corporation that's a part of the problem. So to me, that was really heart heartfelt and amazing to see all of these uh, middle-class folks, if you will, come together with some of the younger and older generation and say, we're not going to do this anymore. We're, we're not, we're not. We're not going to stand up and take this anymore. So that, among many, many, many other things, and, like, children coming down and getting on the soapbox and saying what they want to see, and really the variety of people coming together of all colors and creeds and, and ages was a beautiful collaboration for, I'm going to keep using the word revolution because I really fully believe that this is the third American revolution and it's going to happen. Now, what would you like to see this quote-unquote revolution evolve into? Like, if you could see the Occupy movement maybe moving, like, forward, what, what kind of do you see for the Occupy movement um, as it develops? Like, you know, because obviously now it's kind of young and, and still kind of finding its its niche. You know, what do you see for its future? Um, I definitely feel like we're in the baby crawling and walking stage. But I feel like we can reestablish, you know, the type of quote-unquote government. You know, I personally, 
Um, I'm an anarcho-socialist, but uh, if there's going to be some sort of governing body, it should be from the bottom up and not the top down. Um, and also, you know, I, I really would like to see there be a change in conversation on how people are treating each other and because if there was an apocalypse and we were all out there fighting, we would have to turn to somebody that we wouldn't typically, you know, want to sit down at a breakfast table with and have a conversation and ask for some help. So it's time that the people that have all of the money, first and foremost, start to help the people that have no money and that we get rid of all of this discrimination and that we work together as a country and as neighbors and as human beings rather than what's been happening here, which is people pitting against each other for reasons that they're not even fully educated on. That's actually an excellent point, the the fact that people are not really fully educated about it. In fact, most of the people I talk to, you know, when I, I mean, like, outside of the movement, of course, they really have no real grasp on what's going on. Um, and it's society has kind of developed that way, is to keep us in the dark with the bread and circuses, just like ancient Rome. Um, now... Um, you know, as far as like you know the the redistribution of wealth and you know moving money around, I mean, um, especially since you're an anarcho-socialist, have you ever considered the possibility of mankind through technology evolving past the use of money? I would much rather mankind get away from paper pictures of dead presidents. Uh, I think. You know, the bartering system works just fine. You know, I come from a gypsy culture where a lot of <laughs> a lot of things that we acquire are through bartering systems and trading and um, offering something to someone for something else, and it it tends to work out 98% of the time. Uh, and I say that just because you know there's t- people that are not always willing to do that, uh, but to further you know the whole money thing is really. We're only using money to find time, and we're binding our time and not living our lives. And we're, you know, there's tons of medicine out there, and there's <laughs> tons of sick people out there, and there's people that can't pay things, and it's just this world revolving around the word debt. And really, all debt is is owing money. So if we're going to be indebted, it would be a much cleaner, clearer world if we didn't have to owe pieces of paper that are hard to acquire because our country itself is in debt. So I don't really fully understand how, if the country as a whole is in debt, and then we get into smaller pictures of people in debt, then it comes down the tier and the trickle-down theory. It's just a big mess. And if we just completely eliminate it, start with a clean slate, we'd be fresh and free and actually ready to build our country back up. That's an excellent point. Now, and it's interesting, though, is just that we're kind of, like, realizing, you know, I think barter is definitely, you know, a step in the right direction and just that, you know, you're talking about uh, us trying to, you know, exchange what we need immediately rather than letting any bank determine the value of things or rather the value of trade in of itself, which kind of just puts us in the situation that we're in now where money is played with, you know, when it was really meant to supposedly be a representation for something that you could trade, you know, that was not necessarily a bad idea, though the fact that then you get somebody's hands on that and they figure out ways to manipulate it to benefit themselves over everyone else, you know, and that's where it really becomes a problem. Um, so, now, moving on, I guess, uh, you know, um, we've basically talked a little bit about, you know, your you know your opinions on the movement and, and the direction that it's going and, 
um, I guess uh, at this point, you know, if you could do, you know, if you could see the movement change any one thing about itself, could you think of anything that you would suggest? If I could see the movement change any one thing about itself, it would be to waste less time in making decisions and more time doing work, getting things done. Um, because as much as I value and appreciate the consensus uh, form, I do think that you know there there are a lot of things that could be done by direct action. And if we did some more direct action as a, a group, you know, getting together with like-minded people, or you know, binding and coming together with community organizations or anything like anything like that, anything to keep furthering what we're all working so hard towards, then I think we would get somewhere a little bit quicker. That's uh yeah, I see that. That's a really good piece of criticism there. And I want to thank you, Jess, for being on today. Um, any parting words for the people listening? <laughs> we the people have to stand up and fight for everything that we have had taken away from us. And it's time to speak up and educate people on exactly what's happening out there in the world today. It's not just here in the United States. It's, it's everywhere in the world. And if we come together as one body, as human beings, we can prevail and succeed. Awesome. Thanks, Jess. And um, you're listening to V-Radio. All right. I'm also here with another person who's currently sitting in the back seat of this car, so you're probably going to hear the sounds of some cans that are moving in the back that we're getting ready to recycle. Um, so, yes, recycling. It was all part of our plan. We wanted to share the message of recycling with all the people around the world who listen to V-Radio. Yeah, what he said. So, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Stefan. I'm an occupier. How long have you been with Occupy? Uh, you know, it's it's been a while. It's about mid-October. I I was I was on camp on day three. So day three. Well, that's awesome. Now, um, how did you learn about the Occupy movement? Facebook. Facebook. Awesome. So you learned about it on Facebook. Now, was that the Occupy movement in general or just Occupy Detroit? Yeah, I guess I should be more specific. That's how I found out about Occupy Detroit. Uh, I had seen some some stuff on the news uh, for Wall Street. Um, but I, I also learned um, through Wikipedia about the history of Occupy and how it started from uh, Adbusters. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, you guys get to hear me uh, bang the microphone on the roof there. That was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so you learned about it. Obviously, you checked it out through Wikipedia. You did some research. What made you decide to get involved? Uh, well, I'm just kind of sick of this shit that I see. I'm sick of not making more money for what I do and what Damn I'm capable free. of. And I, I wish I wouldn't have to pay out of pocket for school. So basically, um, you know, you're just kind of frustrated with the state of the world. Now, is this the first activism you've ever been involved in? I guess it it depends how you define that. Um, I, I mean, I'm in, on an email list for a group called Mercy for Animals, and I... I did abstain from eating meat for a while, and I'm trying to get back to that, but I'm still eating fish. Um, when I was 15, I went to an anti-Bush uh, kind of like seminar with a group of people. I don't even remember their name. It was so long ago. Um, I kind of I tabled that for a little while and just kind of fell into the system, but I'm back. 
Well, that's awesome. Now, um, can you share um, like a specific moment uh, from your time at camp that, or even just in the Occupy movement in general that sticks out for you that you'd like to share with everyone listening? Well, I'm, I, I am inclined to think of a more positive moment, and I'm thinking uh, I, was, I was up late one night, um, and I had been getting the routine of not getting... Um, having over average hours of wake periods and under average hours of sleeping periods so on this particular night I'd been up till it was about seven in the morning sun wasn't still a little dark outside and I and I passed out in this tent that used to have our dry storage canned goods in it but it was empty at the time in in kitchen and I figured yes I'm falling asleep for security but at least I still have presence and uh what had happened a few minutes later was this man walked by and put a blanket on me, and I didn't know what he did at first. And I jumped up and, and started shouting at him, Hey! Hey! And he turned around and, and just told me that he put a blanket on me, and I was just... I, <laughs> I think that says a lot of things, especially about our, our camp in specific, you know, like there's, there's great people out there. There was somebody who you didn't even know, who decided that you looked cold and put a blanket on you. That is correct. And uh, well, I got up and talked with him for a few minutes, and then he, he let me sit in his car to warm up. He had uh, heated seats. Um, the, the man's still involved with our movement. He's put in a lot of work and time. And uh, since that moment that I had met him, um, I've, I've gotten to know him a little bit more on a personal level, and, and I appreciate him as a person. Now, um, same question I had asked her. Uh, where do you see, like, where would you like to see this movement evolve to or grow to? Hmm. Occupy Mars. Yeah. Craig's got the right idea. Um, Occupying other planets because the economy is clearly messed up on their planets because they don't have any. <laughs> no, we just spread it. <laughs> if it works, it works. It needs to go everywhere. I, w- I would just like to see a reform in, in our society in general. Um, it, it would be nice if we didn't have to protest and and go Grand Circus Park and and risk tear gas and cold air and stuff. You know, it'd be it'd be nice if people just actually gave a shit. Show, <laughs> right? You know, well, I agree with you, and I think that um, it's beneficial though that we had this conversation. Um, we've arrived at our destination, and I'll probably be asking you some questions here pretty soon because um, you're going to be going on a bike trip, and I know you want to detail that more later. Um, but, you know, you, what was your destination going to be again? St. Petersburg, Florida. Okay. Awesome. And we're going to do a special segment about that later, whether it's on video or in audio. But thanks again. You're listening to V Radio. Woo! All right. I'm here with Justin from Occupy Detroit, and um, we're going to do a little bit of an interview with him. This is going to be available on video and on audio. All right, so I'm once again here with Justin, as I said earlier. Go ahead, Justin, introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Justin. I'm from Occupy Detroit. Um, I work with education, I work with outreach, I work with a media team. However, mostly uh, lately I've been doing outreach work. Um, I had a very comfortable childhood. Um, I come from a very small family. Um, I grew up comfortably. I had a good relationship with most of my um, immediate family, my mother, um, etc. Um, I have always been into politics. Um, I came of age um, at a very, uh, a very tumultuous time for the United States. Um, 
9-11, the Iraq War. I was 11 or 12 when um, there was the, uh, when George Bush was elected to his second term. Um, and that was really when I, I started to follow politics, um, um, follow politics quite a bit. Um, I was big into Michael Moore at the time, not so much anymore. Um, I uh, would watch The Daily Show with my mom late at night, and I'd have a passive understanding of politics, but I never really took the time to critically examine my society compared to other societies in the world and what could possibly be. I knew only what I saw, uh, and I, politically speaking, was somewhat close-minded. And that's something that Occupy has really changed for me, because I've met so many different people, I've had so many different conversations, and I've seen so many other um, systems in practice on a small scale that um, I, I kind of want to say that uh, the Occupy movement has radicalized me a little bit. Um, but I graduated high school, um, and I immediately jumped into the workforce after a semester at community college. Um, I worked at a warehouse. I did three 12-hour shifts a week, uh, which was nice because I got four days off, but um, I wound up working the entire weekend. I worked Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And it's very difficult to work your body for 12 hours because it was warehouse work, which um, was very difficult on your body when you're lifting heavy stuff all day. Um, I drove a highway sometimes, cleaned the bathrooms other times, but I did a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, about two months into working at this warehouse, which was a distribution center for a very large American corporation, um, they, the productivity numbers started to drop. Um, and when the, C, when the executives, or excuse me, regional managers came in and took a look at what was happening at our warehouse, rather than changing the system of operation, rather than holding the managers accountable, Instead, their main concern was that the workers just weren't working hard enough. Um, I was a temp worker, which is no figure, because you don't have rights, you don't have benefits, you don't have, um, you don't have time off. None of that kind of stuff. You are there to work. Um, there were temp workers who were on the dock who had not been hired in, working as a temp, for six or seven years. <laughs> and you're only, these people were only getting three days off a year. And it, it takes a massive toll on your body and on your psyche to eat, sleep, and breathe work for four to five days a week. You know? Because I, I, I work the, 12 hour, the three twelves uh, a week, but also sometimes I pick up overtime hours um, during the week. I, I'd come in for a 10-hour shift or something like that. About two months into working there, as I said, our productivity numbers dropped and the execs came in and decided to just work as hard. So they instituted a policy of mandatory overtime. Uh, so instead of working a 12-hour shift, I'd sometimes work a 16-hour shift. I'd go in at 5 a.m. and I wouldn't leave until 9.30 p.m. And the next morning I'd have to get up at 3 a.m. to go to work at 5 a.m. to get out again at 9 o'clock p.m get up the next morning at 3 a.m. and then go to work at 5 a.m. and then get out God knows when. It was tough. On you a were a machine. People. Yeah. It was uh, it was exploitation at its finest. And no one could complain. No one, we didn't have a union to go to. We didn't have any collective bargaining rights. We didn't have anyone looking out for us. We were temp workers. Um, and they 
they used us as well as they possibly as well as they possibly could have. And if anybody ever complained, um, if anybody ever got sick and missed a day, that they could fire you for any or no reason, because you're you're them. Uh, uh, so someone could walk off the job at 12 o'clock, you know, in the afternoon, and they could find a replacement for them by one, because that's the way the job market is here in you know in Metro Detroit. It's it, it, times are very desperate, and even for shitty jobs, there's always someone who's going to be more desperate than you looking for work. If they, if you're not comfortable with what you're doing, that's fine. You can leave because we'll find someone else who has even lower standards than you. So I worked there for about five months, which isn't very long in the grand scheme of things. But considering the workload that I was doing, um, when I got out, I had developed a minor heart problem, um, and there wasn't really much I could do about it when I. Stopped, uh, when I stopped working, things got better. Um, I started feeling better as a whole. Um, since I worked weekends, I didn't really get a chance to go out and hang out with friends on the weekends. All my friends worked the first shift, which was during the week at their jobs, you know. Um, and uh, I worked all on the weekends. So while my friends were working, I was off. While I was working, my friends were off. So I saved up a lot of money just kind of, you know, sitting around during the week. Um, just focusing on myself, relaxing, recuperating for the next long work week. Because in those four days off, I was so exhausted. I spent a good portion of my time sleeping in in bed or just lounging around, you know, waiting for work to start again. And I think that's uh, the way a lot of Americans who are in this, this job market feel right now. And I know people who are pulling, you know, 80 hours a week, which is rough. I have it easy because I was... I started off as just a student when I worked there, but then I didn't even have homework to do because the semester. Some people who worked there worked an even bigger workload than me, worked longer hours, and had kids, had a wife, had a girlfriend, had uh, you know even more school than I did. So I can't imagine how difficult it must be for them. And it's it's so easy to lose hope in an environment like this, and really you know get the tunnel vision where you just you look inward at what's happening in your life and you don't really notice much else. It's hard to follow politics when you're working 80 hours a week. It's hard to um, it's hard to really care about society and you know issues that are facing the world right now that don't directly affect you as it stands right now when you have a family to provide for and you're balancing work with school. Especially when you have to go out of your way to get educated and, get, and hear what's actually happening. Um, have you considered that that might be by design, like intentional? There's a really good quote I like by a folk musician. His name's Roy Zimmerman. And uh, he has a song called Intelligent Design. And the chorus is It's all really stupid, but it's stupid by intelligent design. <laughs> right. I think he was referring to religion, but yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> Just the idea that though that is that it seems as though that society was engineered in such a way as to prevent us from ever being in a situation where we can actually think about what's going on around us. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think the media really proves that. Depending on your political ideology, you can turn on one channel and get what you want to hear spoon-fed to you, or you can turn on another channel and get a completely different message spoon-fed. Journalism is about presenting the facts to people and letting them form their own opinions. 
but the media that we have in this country right now spoon feeds an opinion to you. And uh, there's a sharp political divide because of that. MSNBC is not the same as Fox. Fox is not the same as CNN. They all have their own, you know, they all have their own agendas that they really want to uh, uh, really uh, share. But after five months of working in that warehouse, I decided to find a clip. Like I said, because I really wasn't hanging out with friends or drinking or anything like that, I had a good amount of cash just sitting there. Um, so, three weeks after I quit my job, I was on a plane to Europe. I decided to buy a plane ticket and um, vagabond across Europe. I lived in Europe for two months, um, just kind of, uh, you know, I started in Rome, made my way through Eastern Europe, and then uh, flew out of the Netherlands back home. It was a great experience. I got to see how other people lived, I got to see how other people talked, how other people ate, how other people thought. Even though I was traveling alone, I never really was alone, ever, because I met these, I met these people. Just uh, random people that not only did I want to talk to them, but I also wanted to listen. Uh, I also had the benefit of seeing how a lot of other countries, um, you know, conduct business. Every corner of the world has its fair share of problems. That is the truth. Uh, but some things tend to work better than others. Um, and so after two months in Europe, I finally got back here. Uh, one of the most enlightening conversations that I had traveling was uh, with an Egyptian girl that I met in Germany. Uh, I met her in Cologne, Germany, uh, which is right on the border of the Netherlands, um, in Belgium. And uh, I got to know her a little bit. And so after uh, I, I started talking to her, I, I wanted to know more about the Egyptian Revolution, because this was still very fresh. This was maybe three months out from what happened uh, in uh, Tahrir Square. And so she was from Cairo. She studied at the University of Cairo. And uh, I asked her, you know, what was the build-up to what happened at Tahrir Square? What was the build-up to the revolution? And she thought about it for a second. And uh, she said, you know, I really don't think there was any build-up. She said, of course there was build-up. Uh, Mubarak had been in power for 35 years, and he oppressed the people for uh, quite a long time. Uh, there had been similar marches in the past and similar demonstrations in the past, but uh, she said, as far as the revolution, she said, uh, we got a Facebook invite at my university to meet in Tahrir Square, and we didn't think anything of it. We really didn't think that things would change nearly as much as they did, but that day rolled around, and we, everything changed. We live at a very interesting point in history. Human beings can organize and communicate um, at a capacity that they've never been able to before. And this technology is very new. Instantaneous global communication and social media, it's, the internet has only been around for 20 years. That's a very small fraction of human history. Social media has only been around for maybe 10 years. You know, And it's, it's had this remarkable effect on human society. We can look anywhere in the world right now at, at other people. We can Skype with our friends thousands of miles away. We have insight in other cultures that we've never had before. And I think as time goes on, people are starting to really realize how similar everyone is, regardless of where you're from, 
regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of the language that you speak or the God that you pray to, we all are somewhat similar. We can all learn from each other. And this, uh, I think this scares the people on top, the people with power. The little guy now can organize a protest in five minutes by creating a Facebook invitation and sending it to all of his friends. I think that's something that really scares the higher-ups, and we see that it does with the right legislation that's been introduced into Congress lately, with the Stop Online Piracy Act. Um, the powers that be are really trying to subvert the Internet and subvert um, um, the ability of people to organize. The reason that I believe that this social movement has the capacity for real change is because unlike social movements in the past, we have this incredible tool. We have the Internet. We have Facebook. We have Twitter. We have live stream. The protests that are happening on the streets, on Wall Street, anybody with a computer and an internet connection can witness. Anyone with a camera and a wireless hotspot can, can broadcast live from anywhere in the world. This technology is so new and so frontier, and it's changing society incredibly quickly. And so some people may look around I think what we're doing is, is worthless and things will never change. But the only constant in history and the only constant in life is change. The history of the human society has changed so much uh, since, since, we, since we've been around. It's, it's, un, it's uncanny. And now with technology, we have the capacity to change things so rapidly that the future, to me, looks promising. And so that's kind of why I'm an activist. It's because a few days after I had this conversation with the Egyptian girl, I saw on Reddit a headline that talked about Occupy Wall Street from a magazine called Adbusters. And I clicked the link, showed a ballerina on the bull on Wall Street, and it said September 17th, um, Occupy Wall Street, bring a tent. And I didn't think much of it. I didn't think anything would come of it. I thought there'd be four guys down there with a weekend tent, camping, maybe a few guys holding up signs, but I didn't think it would take off. In August, I never would have thought there would have been a constant occupation happening in Zuccotti Park. When it finally did happen in Zuccotti Park, I never would have expected it to make its way to my state, to make its way to my city, to make its way to Detroit. I never would have seen that coming. And when it finally did, in October, I never would have expected it to go international. The impact, I think the count now, is 1,400 cities around the globe. That's incredible. That's unprecedented. It's not for all seven continents, including Antarctica. And when mm -hmm. you really think about it, let's say 40 scientists on Antarctica, and 20 of them are occupiers, then Antarctica is like 50% occupied. So, <laughs> Occupy Wall Street has one continent down already, which I think is pretty fantastic. <laughs> it's a message that everybody can get behind, and everybody can influence through the general assemblies that are had. Um, it's, it's easy to write off what's happening. It's easy to say that people won't change anything. It's easy to say it's a bunch of jobless hippies out there who will never bring about real change. But think about the society that we live in today and how different it is from ones in the past. We have a lot of technology and a lot of know-how to bring about the kind of change that we need. And we need this change. I think the, the thing that really uh, 
made me want to act was when I realized that our current system right now, above all else, is unsustainable. Mathematically speaking, we can't do this for another 50 years, or we're doomed. We can't keep consuming like this. It's just, it's not possible. So I'd rather work for change now than work for change later out of necessity. So, um, certainly not briefly, but that's, um, that's why I'm here at Occupy. Because I believe change can be done, and I believe we need change soon. Well, you know, it's actually fine that it wasn't brief because the people here, you know, are interested or they wouldn't be tuned into my channel or my radio in the first place. And, um, you know, uh, Justin, let's talk a little bit about life at uh, Occupy Detroit. Can you give me, like, uh, a memory or, you know, some moment in time while you were out at camp that really sticks out, maybe life-changing, something that you would share with your grandkids? You know, when, when questions like that are answered, um, I have a lot of pride for the Occupy movement saying something like that happened nearly every day. Um, what was great about the park is that it was a, a public location, a central location, where we probably had several hundred people walk through that park. Some days, several thousand people walk through that park just asking questions, just looking for conversation, trying to figure out what's going on. In my time in that park, I... I, I had more interesting conversation than I had, you know, pretty much any other time in my life, say, traveling. Um, one conversation that really sticks out in my head um, was I, uh, there was a part on the cement in Grand Circus Park by the, the big fountain in the center um, where someone had wrote in Russian, peace to earth, you know. Someone had wrote in Korean, Peace. Someone had wrote in Chinese, love and brotherhood. I know a little bit of Arabic, so, you know, I thought I'd write peace be upon you. So I, I grabbed some chalk, and I start writing in Arabic, Assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you. After I get done doing that, I, I look up, and there's this guy walking with his bicycle. And he's just yelling stuff at people. This older guy, just, you know, yelling stuff at, at random people, asking questions. He'd ask a question, and then he'd walk away. So I walked up to him, deliberately got in his path, and he and you know he said, "What are you guys doing here?" I told him a little bit about the Occupy movement, and he said, "I want to ask you something." He said, "I've asked everybody here, and everybody said no." He said, "Have you been to any other country besides the United States?" And I was like, "Well, yeah." And he's like, "Which one?" And I said, "Well, I've been to 19 other countries." <laughs> and so he was like, "And let me guess, they're all in the first world." I said, "Well, I." I guess you could say that, although in my time in, in Eastern Europe, and uh, I, I'd seen some extreme poverty. Um, but yeah, pretty much everything I, I've seen has been in the first world. And he said, so you've never been to the Middle East? I said, no. And he went, ha! And he walked off. And I was like, no, you're not going to get away that easy. So I chased after him. <laughs> and I stopped him. And I said, I'm studying Arabic. I'm studying Islam. I've been to mosque a couple times, and I try to have conversations with people from different cultures whenever I can. I said, so tell me a little bit more about yourself then. And it turns out this guy was an Israeli expat who was a businessman in Detroit. He said his parents owned, he said, I think he said, 12 different buildings in Detroit. And he said he's, he's worked all his life, 
and he's paying to put his kids through college. And he said he wants to know why other people can't do it. And he also mentioned that I was the first person he talked to on camp who had been out of the country. Um, and I think because I mentioned that, he decided to stay back and talk to me because I wasn't going to let this guy walk away. It's very, very impolite and it's very ignorant to ask someone a question and then walk away. If you want to get a point across, then stay there and try and talk to the person and listen, or else you just come off very, very poorly. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to this guy, and then we go through so many subjects so quickly. He's, uh, he's Jewish, so he has um, a belief that the universe is six thousand, the Earth is six thousand years old, and that um, God is going to come in and and save us at some point, and we are currently. In, a, in the end times and all of this, and so I give them some scientific arguments, and we go back and forth on religion for a while, and then we get on the subject of Israel, which is a very touchy subject. And um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And he, and he said, "What do you expect to accomplish here? Do you expect to get a building?" And I said, "Yeah, we expect to get a building at some point in the future." And he said, "So how are you going to pay for it?" And I said, "Well." We're getting donations constantly. Before I could finish my sentence, talk about fundraising and talk about the things that we're doing, he says, <laughs> donations. You can't build anything on donations. And so I said, well, you know, Israel receives about $1 million of U.S. foreign aid every year. <laughs> oh, my God. And that lit this guy up. <laughs> so we're going back and forth. And I'm telling my opinion of Israel, which, um, you know, there's... <laughs> There's uh, positives and negatives on both sides of the debate, mm -hmm. um, but the fact of the matter is Israel wouldn't be as powerful as it is now had it not been for how much the United States has helped that country and continues to help and provide for that country. Mm -hmm. A country doesn't just form out of the blue without any support and then become a dominant force in the Middle East. That's just not how it happens. Israel is a very young country. We sell them F-15s, we sell them F-16s, we sell them bombs, we give them guns, we give them aid, we do lots for Israel. Um, and the conversation started to get more heated, and it went back and forth, and it finally calmed down a little bit. I think he respected me a little bit to make that kind of, you know, argument uh, towards him. So, at the end, uh, I felt he had a better understanding of Occupy. Because after, after the conversation really rose in intensity, it started to drop off, and we just had a calm conversation about Occupy and how I felt, how, how he felt. Um, and I think he gained a greater appreciation uh, for what we were doing. And at the end, he, he acknowledged that I was right about a few things. Specifically that, um, it's easy to say that if you work your butt off, no matter what, you'll succeed in this country. But that's not true. I have a better chance of succeeding because I was born in the suburbs of Metro Detroit. Whereas someone born in Highland Park where there's abandoned houses on every street, where they turn the street lights off at night because the, because the, the city government doesn't have enough money to turn on the street lights. And the public school system there doesn't get as much funding as the school that I went to because of No Child Left Behind, everybody's at a different level. And we're, we are a product of our upbringing. 
And I think the more that it finally sank into him, that as he grew up, he had a number of, of advantages. Growing up in Israel, traveling the Middle East, living in Europe for a while, then coming to the United States with his family to start a business in Detroit. I think he, he realized there that had he been born in Highland Park, had his school been shut down when he was eight, he might be in a very, very different situation. Or had he been born in Palestine. Or <laughs> had he been born in the West Bank. What does he think life would have been like? Social mobility in this country is somewhat of an illusion, depending on where you're from. The problem isn't that we are in a... Uh, that we don't have enough resources and we don't have enough money to sustain everybody. It's really that there's a small minority in this country that's pathologically hoarding all of the wealth and all of the money. and makes it harder for the rest of us down here who are fighting for the 40% of the wealth that they don't own, it's very difficult for us to, to get by and survive. And so, at the end of our conversation, we both respected each other. We shook hands, and he said, you know, I wish you guys the best. I hope something comes out of this, but I'm not going to hold my breath. And I said, that's fair. And he said, Shalom. And I said, Salam. Shalom is Hebrew for peace. Salam is um, Arabic for peace. And so he walked off. I never saw him again. But I had a feeling that his stroll through the park was a little bit more difficult than he expected. <laughs> and, it, and that conversation is one of the most fondly remembered conversations that I had at the park, even though it started off so hostily. If you kill people with kindness, and you listen to what people have to say, and no matter what, no matter how much people disagree with you, if you always command respect, that's it. It's very difficult for people to just blow you off. Absolutely, because then they don't have anything that you've done that like is gauche or low brow or whatever to try to cling to, and then therefore ignore the content that you were trying to bring at them. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting actually. Uh, I do have some hope because there is one organization um, where uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis have absolutely no tension. The Zeitgeist Movement. I spoke to the Israeli chapter and the Arabic chapter, and they hang out all the time. They have no problems with each other. Um, they have to be careful about it because they don't want the other side to no longer listen to them anymore. Um, I'm hoping that there are Occupy movements that will be able to achieve the same thing. But when it gets to the bound of the, the world of you know, the situation of let's come up with a solution where everyone can be taken care of, then the fighting goes away. You know, I think that a lot of the problems that are going on over there have to do with the fear of like who's going to be taken care of, whose land is it, all that other jazz, rather than how do we solve the problem. And it's such a um, you know it's it's such a um, a powerful political force that um, that conflict that's going on. So I think there are parts on both sides that mm -hmm. just want to coexist, that want the conflict to end. But there's also powerful people in control who want to use the Palestinians being oppressed as a political force. Mm -hmm. And there's people in Israel who are imperialists, who want to take over more of the West Bank and more of Gaza. So I, I do believe that the majority of the people over there, they, they do want peace. They can meet on level ground, and they often do, like you said, with the, with the Zeitgeist group. Well, it's um, one thing that I end up, like, I say this frequently because I have friends on both sides of the fence, um, because I, I actually have Jewish friends, and I have Arabic friends, 
And I remember at one point my activist friends were really flipping out over what was going on when um, Israel started like rocketing, you know, places to get one of their troops back or something. Uh, I think that was Lebanon. Right. They well, bombed the airport. They yeah. The whatever they did, it was it was a bit more recent, and they're like, "Well, aren't you up in arms about this?" I said, "Well." This is going to sound a little bad, but the dead people lying on the ground there don't look any different to me than the dead people who are lying on the ground when Hamas sends a suicide bomber into a coffee shop full of people who weren't hurting anyone. And I said that, to me, the whole thing is a tragedy. And then if you want to get to the source of it, find out what jackass is figuring out a way to make money out of the whole thing. That's the bad guy. These, these two groups of people are being played against each other. Um, and I guess... When people single out Israel, it just kind of, it, as if there's some special component of it. I'm like, no, there's just, it's, Israel is just another government that's basically a puppet for whatever other, you know, force is controlling the situation. And that's why I said it's, you know, it, there was actually an interview at one point with an Israeli colonel, because um, it was after that, that child had been shot, and they kept showing that video um, over and over again of that kid, you know, being terrified and all that. And, you know, he made a very interesting point, you know, but they're trying to interview him while he's in the middle of dealing with gunfire. And he's like, they're like, well, what do you think about, you know, what happened when your troops, you know, accidentally shot that child? And he's like, what do you think of parents that knowingly bring their children to war, to a war zone? And then he said, I feel bad for them, but it's a bad choice in the first place, you know. And he went back to doing his work to try to, at that point, anyway, protect his people. And I don't like that the child was killed by any stretch of the imagination, but he had a very good point. I, I wouldn't bring my children anywhere near the West Bank. And if I was silly enough to do so, I wouldn't be acting like that was some major act of tyranny on the part of Israel that a child happened to get shot in the middle of a place that is known to be a war zone. Well, know that there are kids born in the West Bank, too. Yes. There are kids growing up in the West Bank. Sure. And Bullets don't discriminate based on kids. No, that's very no. true. That's very true. But I guess I, that what I'm getting is, is that I, I try to isolate the conflict is the problem. Right. War is the problem. Uh, on the other hand, though, proportionality should be a guideline in war. That's, sure. uh, that's a quote from Robert McNamara. Mm -hmm. And it, Hamas will send a poorly aimed rocket into Israel and kill seven people. Who they have no idea have ever had anything to do with any of their oppression, who could in fact be diplomats, it could be anyone. It's right. just that's right. it's, it's, it's so wrong, dumb. It's terrible and it's a tragedy to take anyone from this world indiscriminately. It's a, it's a tragedy. And then Israel will turn around and there, there are pictures from um, the latest uh, military actions that they did in Gaza. Mm -hmm. um, I forget how long ago. And white phosphorus was used on a group of civilians who were running away. You saw the, the the people running towards the camera, and in the back there were pieces of white phosphorus raining from the sky, which is illegal to use in warfare, by the way. Sure. Um, we used it in Iraq, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Israel kills far more Palestinians than Palestinians kill Israel's. Is, is Israelis. But it's, um, no matter how many people you're killing, it's wrong to kill anybody. Sure. And it's interesting. I love the fact that you brought up that it's not solely Israel's fault. It's also not solely Palestine's fault. Uh, no, absolutely. Although not. I believe um, a disproportionate amount of you know uh, the foul has happened on behalf of Israel, especially in recent times with the occupation that's taking place in Palestine. However, the conflict there is being prolonged, mm -hmm. and it is being manufactured by the people who benefit. 
Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure eventually there will be peace in that region. I, I do believe that, especially with how much society is changing now. But we got a we got a long way to go. How much do you think of the situation over there is driven by uh, irrational religious beliefs? <laughs> um, quite a bit. Quite a bit. When I spoke with an Israeli man in Grand Circus Park, when I mentioned that it, it's, you know, when the UN partitioned Israel and Palestine, mm -hmm. Israel illegally took much more land than they were supposed to. Right. That's, that's a fact. And the reason that many Israelis, not all, many, um, uh, some, I should say, justify this, is saying that that land was guaranteed to them by God. It is their land. They are the chosen people. On the other side of the fence, however, um, you, can, um, you can take Islam out of context and radicalize, and radicalize people. Um, you can, there's, uh, there's radical, there's radical beliefs on both sides. Uh, For sure. And, uh, and that's, that's actually one of the reasons why I look at it from both sides and make, it makes me wonder who the puppet master is because when you consider the fact that, um, if your intent was to get the Israelis to decide they wanted to make peace, then blowing up random people in a coffee shop is not effective. Trust me, I'm Irish. We figured this out. Um, second of all, uh, on the other side of it, though, if your intent is to try to make Palestinians happy with their situation where they live, then you know doing what you're doing isn't helping either. And that's why I'm saying it's like there's no... If there was any interest in conflict resolution, I think it's getting derailed on both sides of the fence. And that's and I, that doesn't mean that it's the layman's fault by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if I shared with you my conversation about uh, with a Muslim girl who showed up at a restaurant that I worked at. But um, I asked her, you know, like, isn't your religion a religion of peace? And she said, oh, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, well can you explain, you know, what, what you feel about why terrorism happens, supposedly in the name of Islam? And she's like, well, um, I don't think those people are very good Muslims. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she takes out her Quran. And she's like, well, first we'll look at this passage, and then it points out that you're never to target innocent women or children in war, period. Directly commanded by the prophet to the people. Um, and he said, she said, so therefore, anybody who takes a mind to flying a plane into a building and killing a bunch of innocent people is not being a very good Muslim. And I said, well, what do you think about the, the theocratic element of it that they seem to be forcing people into their religion? And she's like, well, that's not very Islamic either. And I said, why? And she pulls out a passage where Muhammad says, there is to be no compulsion in religion. You will have your religion, and I will have my religion. Um, and well, it, Islam is just a fascinating religion to study. Well, right. And it's, it's not to say that there aren't also contradictions, but Islam gets pointed out for having wars and stuff like it as if the Old Testament isn't stocked full of it, because it is. The Old Testament was used to justify the Crusades and all the other crap that was done in the name of Christianity. And there was that, uh, that one time, way back when, you know, God decided to firebomb two cities and then turn a woman into salt for looking at it. <laughs> uh, so. Yes, very much so. And, um, so, hold on. I accidentally ended that last video a little bit prematurely, but um, in any case, we were basically about to cap it off, so... Um, Justin, you know, to give you a moment to speak to my listeners who come from all different parts of the world, um, if you could say
say one thing right now that everyone in the world heard, what would it be? Are you trying to interview me for a job? <laughs> oh, no. Man, I hate questions like this. It, it's, oh, it's, it's tough. Um, the whole world is watching. Okay, well, no pressure. <laughs> um, I guess one thing that I could say is realize that at all times, you're at the mercy of your perception of the world. Um, there's no harm in trying to understand something. There's no harm in listening to somebody even when you don't agree with them. There's, there's no harm in getting to know other people. There's no harm in possibly tabling this discussion for a later time when I have a better question thought up in my head. Well, um, since you're going to be on my podcast, I, I imagine that you'll get an opportunity, but don't think I'll forget. Right. Um, <laughs> hmm, that's, a, that's a tough one. I'm sure there's a, a philosopher or thinker in the past who can put it better than I could. Well, at least, Justin, um, one of the things about it is that, you know, you have the humility to understand that you don't have an answer now and that you'd want more time to figure it out later. And that's a completely acceptable thing. Um, one of the things that Jack Fresco says frequently is that people don't know how to say the words, I don't know, often enough. And instead, they just kind of shoot off at the mouth when they're either not really thinking what they're saying, and it causes way more problems in the long run. There's a, there's a quote um, from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that I really like. It's um, Ford Prefect who says it, who's the main character's best friend, who's an alien. He comes to Earth, and he observes people on Earth, and he notices how much humans talk, and he formulates a theory, because he can't figure out why everyone's always talking. So he starts off thinking that, okay, so if humans stop talking, their mouth is going to fall off. That's why they talk so much. <laughs> And then he realizes after a while that, no, it's not because their mouth falls off. It's because if they stop talking, they might actually start thinking. Oh. So that's a, I love that. That's a I good ender on that. Thank you very much for being on, Justin. Well, thank you for having me. All right, you guys are going to hear more from Justin later because he's going to be co-hosting for me as soon as that becomes more possible. Um, and once again, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to V-Radio.